Hello and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated. Today we are going to be talking about the presidency of James Madison from the years 1809 to 1817, which will also include the War of 1812, the burning of the Capitol, him being the father of the Constitution, among some other things. With us as always is our history teacher, Jeanne Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right, so when it comes to the first three presidents, most people know a decent amount about them. But when you start with James Madison, things start to get a little hazy. Even we were talking about this, and I asked you, and, and your knowledge was you know somewhat limited on it. And I think for most people who are not history teachers or a lover of all things history, it gets a little hazy. You forget certain things. So for James Madison, you know, it's important to know a little bit about his background. He's the son of a wealthy Virginia plantation owner. His family lived in a large home named Montpelier, which, of course, was built by slave labor. Upon his father's death, he inherits the home and the slaves. He was privately tutored in a number of different areas and studied at what would later become Princeton. He studies history, geography, philosophy, classical languages. He gets involved in local Virginia politics and began what would become known as a lifelong working relationship with Thomas Jefferson, another famous Virginian, but also a lifelong friendship with Thomas Jefferson. Like Washington and Jefferson, he marries a young, somewhat wealthy widow. A bit of a trend there, Dolly Madison. Dolly Madison proved to be a great asset for her husband politically. She knew how to play the game. She was a schmoozer. She was always hosting these really lavish parties in their home. Um, she helped Thomas Jefferson when he was president. He is, of course, a widower by the time he becomes president. And Dolly Madison many times played the role of uh, hostess for Thomas Jefferson. And even after James Madison's death, Dolly Madison plays a very interesting role in Washington, D.C. politics. He begins his long political career in local Virginia politics. He was elected to the Virginia legislature. And in an earlier podcast, we discussed the failures of the Articles of Confederation and why they eventually were replaced by the Constitution. James Madison is often referred to as the father of the Constitution. He kept very detailed notes, more than any other delegate at the convention. This was a title he did not embrace during his lifetime, and he often said that the Constitution was the work of many men and many minds. In gearing up for the uh, meeting to discuss whether or not they were going to keep these articles, James Madison wrote what becomes known as the Virginia Plan, which ended up providing the basic framework for the Constitution. His involvement in local politics allowed him to witness firsthand the failures of the Articles of Confederation and the variety of difficulties that state governments were having. His plan called for a strong central government with its power divided among three separate branches, an executive, a legislative, a judicial branch. His vision 
for the legislative branch was that it would be based on population. An opposing plan brought up at the Constitutional Convention, which was known as the New Jersey Plan, called for equal representation for the states. Compromise would be essential in getting both the large and smaller states to agree to this new government. Both visions were used. This is why today in the legislative branch, we have what we call a bicameral or two-house legislature. The upper house, the Senate, where states have equal representation, two senators per state, and a lower house, the House of Representatives, where representation is based on a state's population. Madison's plan to have representation based on population led the southern states to demand the counting of slaves in their population. This would ultimately lead to what becomes known as the three-fifths compromise. Hey, real quick, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering just exactly what is the three-fifths compromise. Can you go into a little bit more detail on that? So the three-fifths compromise was not a compromise that happened easily. It was debated over. They argued over how many slaves should count towards the population. The northern states, of course, wanted to limit the number of slaves that would count, and the southern states wanted as many slaves to count as possible. And a number of different ratios were thrown out. It was actually Madison himself that came up with the five to three ratio. So what the three-fifths compromise stipulates is that three out of every five slaves would count as a person towards the population. And to kind of sweeten the deal for the northern states, this number also was directly related to taxation for those states. So you want your slaves to count, that's fine, but you're going to pay more in taxes than two. And so the southern states agreed. And so three-fifths of the slave population of a state would count towards representation, count towards the total population of that state. Not everyone was as convinced as Madison that a strong central government was the way to go. As a result, Madison, along with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, wrote what became known as the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers were a series of 85 essays written to persuade the delegates of the importance and the necessity of ratifying the Constitution. The alliance of Madison and Hamilton would be short-lived. Hamilton was Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, and Madison disagreed with the creation of the National Bank. He felt it was unconstitutional. Years later, as president, Madison would allow the charter of the first National Bank to expire. This would be a detrimental mistake, and it caused an economic crisis during the War of 1812. Without the bank, the government could not fund the war and had to rely on loans. Wars are costly. During his second term as president, Madison would be forced to support the creation of the second national bank. After the Constitution was ratified, Madison would go on to serve in the House of Representatives for Virginia and was 
an important advisor for George Washington during his presidency. He was very influential in helping Washington choose members of his cabinet. He often helped uh, Washington write speeches. He actually helped Washington write his inaugural address. But he serves in the House of Representatives at first and eventually uh, is Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of State. The two men began their political alliance when Jefferson was the governor of Virginia. The two men worked to establish religious freedom in Virginia. They shared a love of the sciences. They had a lot in common. And it was Jefferson who convinced Madison that a Bill of Rights was necessary and should be added to the Constitution. What most people don't realize is that Jefferson was not at the Constitutional Convention. He was in France serving as a diplomat. And so a lot of what Jefferson knew about what was happening at the Constitutional Convention came from his correspondence with James Madison. So we have a bit of a, a bromance here between Madison and Jefferson. They shared many of the same political beliefs, and they feared the direction that Hamilton and the Federalists wanted to take the nation in. It was Madison who strengthened the political party of the Democratic Republicans. Jefferson often gets a lot of that credit, but it was Madison. And in 1808, he was elected president and served two terms. All right, here we are. He's the president. So now let's get into some of the major events of his presidency in addition to the War of 1812. So one of the first uh, major domestic issues we should talk about is the second charter of the National Bank. When Hamilton first proposed the idea of a national bank, Madison, along with many other Democratic Republicans, felt the bank was unconstitutional and feared the power it would give this newly created federal government. The charter for the first national bank was allowed to expire in 1811. Over the course of the next five years, we see an increase in debt due to the War of 1812, inflation, and increased price of goods. The charter for the second national bank was created with a 20-year charter, just like the first national bank. Madison was left with no choice but to support the charter. Some of the foreign issues that occurred during this time is, of course, the War of 1812. The War of 1812 is often referred to as the Second War from in for Independence. It lasted from 1812 to 1815. And there are a variety of causes of this war, which we've kind of touched on briefly. Seizing of U.S. ships, the impressment of American sailors into the British Army, the desire to take over Canada or British North America, as it was all called, and prevent the British from arming Native Americans. Some members of Congress became known as war hawks. They were pushing for war with Britain. Increase in nationalism is happening. We see the British, uh, this, this feeling that the British are insulting American honor. And there was a desire for westward expansion. One of the first battles of the War of 1812 is known as the Battle of Tippecanoe. General William Henry Harrison, who would later become president, 
um, his campaign slogan was Tippecanoe and Tyler II, a bit of history trivia for you. It's considered the first battle of the War of 1812, and Harrison and his soldiers fought against Native American tribes and eventually won. The War Hawks felt the British were egging natives on to attack Western settlers and were arming them. The truth is that westward expansion itself increased tensions. Native Americans were angry about the unequal land treaties and were beginning to demand more favorable land rights within those treaties. New Englanders and Northerners wanted peace. The trade embargo passed during the presidency of Jefferson and the impending war hurt them economically. At the first beginning point of the War of 1812, you know, the Americans seemed to be winning. And you have to look at this from the perspective of Great Britain. When the United States, you know, declares war on Great Britain, you had to imagine them kind of sinking themselves. You've got to be kidding me. And for the first few months, you know, Americans were winning a number of battles. But by 1814, when the Napoleonic Wars in Europe end, the British could devote their full attention to the war with their former colonies. In August of 1814, after a victory in Maryland, the British marched on Washington, D.C. and burned the Capitol building, the president's mansion, which eventually, of course, becomes known as the White House, uh, the Treasury Department, and a number of major buildings and American warships. In the eyes of the British, this was seen as retribution for the American soldiers burning the Canadian capital of York. It would take years for the United States to rebuild its capital. And one of the famous stories that kind of happen or come out of the burning of Washington in the War of 1812 is the story of, you know, Dolly Madison uh, saving the portrait of George Washington. And you know, over the years when that story gets told, you kind of get this vision of, you know, Dolly Madison, you know, peering out the windows of the executive mansion and seeing these British soldiers and these, you know, lit torches. And she grabs this massive portrait off the wall and is, you know, running out of the, the mansion and throughout Washington, D.C., dodging bullets from muskets. And that's just not what happened. You know, Dolly Madison ordered the portrait of George Washington saved uh, but she did not single-handedly save this portrait. An enslaved man by the name of Paul Jennings, who was owned by President Madison, is the one who actually saved the portrait. But the portrait was saved nonetheless, and it hangs in the White House today. All wars end with a treaty. The Treaty of Ghent is the treaty that ends the War of 1812. And there's a, a famous quote about this treaty. It's status quo antebellum. What that means is that we would go back to the way things were before the war. Nothing lost, nothing really gained. So there was reconciliation between the former mother country and its former colonies. All territories won by the other side had to be returned. There's no real winner here. The United States was finally recognized, though, by its former mother country. And the United States gave up on its desire to control British-controlled Canada. Former Tories or loyalists living in Canada who had to flee after the Revolutionary War saw the biggest gains. 
you know, when we teach about the War of 1812 here in the United States, and we teach it, it's important. In Great Britain, it's really not much of a big deal. It's, it's a brief mention. But in Canada, the War of 1812 is given ample time in classrooms. Uh, for Native Americans, they're left out of this treaty. American settlers would continue to expand westward and infringe on their way of life. So when teaching about the War of 1812, I always try to hammer home how important perspective is. And so I would play two different songs for my students. The first song I would play is The Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton. And it very much tells the story of how the Americans were winning and we fired our guns and the British kept coming. But, you know, we're victorious. And the second song I always played is a song by a Canadian band called The Arrogant Worms, and the song is called The War of 1812. And it's a little silly in the beginning, but it gets down to this premise that, you know, the White House burned and we're the ones that did it. So it gives this perspective that maybe the United States wasn't as victorious as they thought. So it's a great way to kind of show perspective, and those songs will hammer home all the important things that you want the kids to remember and they of course will not forget how Washington burned during the war of 1812. One of the most famous battles of the war of 1812 never really had to take place at all. Um, The battle of New Orleans was fought after the war of 1812 ended. The treaty had been signed in Ghent, Belgium but the soldiers on both sides didn't know it yet. It was an overwhelming victory for American forces led by General Andrew Jackson, who would eventually become president, and it helped him to make a national hero. Had the tre- news of the treaty gotten to the United States, that war, that battle might not have never happened, and maybe Andrew Jackson would not have been the national hero he became because of it. Like many former presidents before him, after his second term, he returns to his plantation in Virginia. And it's important to talk about Madison and slavery. It is believed that the Madison family enslaved over 300 people. Madison, the man who created the foundations of a government built on the premise of freedom and individual liberties, denied those same freedoms to hundreds of people. At Montpelier, there is an exhibition called The Mere Distinction of Color. It's a wonderful exhibition. It uses the combination of archaeological evidence and the oral histories of living descendants of those who were enslaved at Montpelier. It provides a very human face to a very dehumanized system that was slavery. If you have an interest in learning more and reading a lot of those firsthand accounts, I highly recommend visiting uh, Montpelier.org if you can't get there yourself. Not everyone um, kept extensive letters like Thomas Jefferson, and many historical documents from the time period were destroyed at Montpelier. There is evidence of several burnings of papers at Montpelier. Madison did not free his slaves upon his death, but instead left them to his wife with the instructions that she not break up families by selling them. She did sell them. Families were broken apart. And like so many other stories like this, it was done to repay debts. 
After his presidency, Madison helped to create the University of Virginia with Thomas Jefferson, and after Jefferson's death, ran the university until 1826. Madison died in 1836, and his legacy is that of a great thinker and the father of the Constitution. The War of 1812, while not a great victory for the United States, didn't tarnish his presidential legacy. His strong convictions on the importance of liberty did nothing of importance to help free those in bondage. His letters and his notes during the Constitutional Convention and the Federalist Papers are some of our greatest works describing the era that helped to build the United States of America. All right. Thank you very much. I remember that song, The Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton, the, the um, War of 1812 by the Arrogant Worms. I, that was a first. You played those for me. Thank you very much. I encourage other people to take a listen of those, too. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.